pandemics, global supply chain issues, cyberware attacks, inflation, the big quit. The list of disruptions goes on and on. We're living in a different world. It's more complex and moving faster than ever. This podcast is to help guide you through these turbulent times to ensure your organization can survive and thrive by becoming disruption-proof. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this second episode on value streams. If you haven't listened to the first, uh, I'd really recommend you go listen to it or read up on it if we've published uh, the transcript. Basically, the first one gives the overview of where value streams came from in the lean world and how they're being used in uh, the agile world as well. Uh, basically, the value stream is is uh, defining all the activities an organization does to create, build, deliver, market, sell, service, support, value as represented by products or services from customers' perspective, that they're getting value from it. Um, and I mentioned that at the end that that's all great for all of the existing stuff. Uh, but all of that is pretty execution-focused. There's some uncertainty when you're getting into continuous improvement, like you want people to be able to look at those processes and go, well, how how can we make it better? And you're all like, I don't know. Oh, okay, okay, well, there's uncertainty. So you have to use these exploration principles to discover that, how to uh, reduce that uncertainty. But I created a tool in my 2013 book, The Lean Entrepreneur, uh, called the Value Stream Discovery. And so Value Stream Discovery is, hey, we're doing something new. We don't know what our value stream is, so I can't map it. And what I wanted to do is take really the practices of startups back then and all of the activities that they could do to create value, all of the, from again, from the inception, from like an idea to building, to marketing, to selling, what are all of the things that a company might do? And it's pretty daunting, right? It's, I guess what used to go in the 50 page business plans that, um, venture capitalists filed in the round circle, the round circle can, um, and a lot of these things, you know, tend to rely on best practices, but best practices change all the time in the fast moving digital world. And so I came up with this tool, Value Stream Discovery Loop, uh, as a way to hypothesize what are all the things that a business might do in order to create new value for customers. Um, so yeah, that's what this that's what we'll talk about today. So I I want you to start with imagining that we're going to do this as much as possible from the customer perspective. So if we're looking at modern human-centered by design, design thinking, even, you know, just sort of lean innovation principles, uh agile defines checking in with stakeholders and customers about the what they're building. We really want to we really want to understand how we're creating value for customers. What can we do to create value for customers? And in this way, it allows us to compete on a different level than, uh, than those companies that are just 
just making this stuff up. And so I find it valuable to start from the customer perspective. So rather than thinking about like, oh, well, we need a website. I'm thinking about, well, how are we going to deliver our marketing message to our core persona? Oh, well, you know, if we could get them to a website, that might be a good idea. So you're going to arrive at the same conclusion sometimes, and you're going to arrive at the same people that need to get the work done sometimes. Uh, but we want to start from, from the customer perspective. So let me give the quick overview. The value stream discovery framework, if we have to call it a framework, we, we created this tool, the value stream discovery loop. And that describes seven states that a customer goes through from first becoming aware of your product to becoming passionate about it. And when I say your product, it could be the one that's still in your head. And so those seven states are aware. First state is aware. They are aware. Oh, Jane Rocket has got a new iPhone app. Cool. Then they become intrigued, hopefully. Oh, Jane Rocket's iPhone apps says that it's going to cure my insomnia. Huh. I sleep horribly. That's kind of cool. I'm intrigued. I then need to become trusting. Well, I can download the app and give it a try for free. Cool. I'll use it. Then they become convinced. Wow. It worked pretty well. Hmm. 99 cents a month. That's a pretty good deal. Guess I'm going to Guess I'm going to click on my Apple Pay. After that they become what I call hopeful. I sure hope this app is actually going to work for me long term. I could use some better sleep. Then they become satisfied. Heh. Not only have my sleep scores improved, but I actually feel rested. And then hopefully they become passionate. I really haven't seen an app do this much good for me in absolutely ages. I am pretty blown away. Uh, I am going to share this uh, with my friends. Aware, intrigued, trusting, convinced, hopeful, satisfied, passionate. Just like with value streams, these can all be broken down into, you know, minutiae layers of activities that actually have to be done in order to get these things functional. But we're just taking the top level here, right? So if you're, you got all of the building of the product that, that goes in here. And so it pyramids down from each one of these states into all of the detail of the work that has to be done in order to get that state. But also in a very lean fashion, you really don't want to do quote unquote all that work until you validated that you actually know what work should be done. And so that's where the lean innovation comes in, the understanding the customers and the 
and uh, running experiments and, and using evidence and working in this agile iterative way um, that is the cornerstone to the work in order to validate your value stream discovery. I also should say that the order of those may change depend upon, depending upon your business model. So if you're doing a freemium, uh, it could be that conversion is getting people to uh, sign up at all. And then you sort of have a second conversion when they're paid, or maybe they pay when they're satisfied. So, you know, this is not hard in stone. You have to be able to adapt it for your product and your business model. But I think it's useful. Um, all models are wrong. Some are useful. I think this is useful if you can learn how to apply it. And the other cool thing is, is that it can show you where you need cross-functional teams, and then it goes as you're validating those cross-functional teams and, and you're growing those teams out, then some of them are, are less cross-functional. And they may still be interdisciplinary, but, but not cross-functional. Maybe I should... Those are often used interchangeably. Cross-functional means I've got marketing group, engineering group, product management group, customer service group, working on figuring out whether we're satisfying the customers. That's cross-functional group coming from different functions. Interdisciplinary are, are sort of the individual skill sets. So on my engineering, I have an architect, I have a front-end engineer, and I have a back-end engineer. Those are all interdisciplinary, but they're in the same function. And so uh, I've talked many times before about how these teams need missions written in ways that you understand whether you need the intra-function interdisciplinary skills, and you don't always do, but also you need to know whether you need the inter-function disciplinary skills, ergo being cross-functional. Uh, hopefully that made sense. So the way I described these seven states, awareness, intrigued, trusting, convinced, hopeful, satisfied, passionate, is not the order that you would build this out or optimize. And so if you imagine, if you went out and got a million customers, this is what most startups and companies do. And I think it's investors often that, that urge this, but entrepreneurs do. Oh, I'm going to go get a million customers. Well, how many people love your product? Well, at zero, right? So you've just wasted that a million, those million customers that you went and acquired. And so we're starting the core of it. Imagine a circle. The, the core is the persona and their need. Like, so what is the customer? Your early adopter, hopefully, defined by specific characteristics and attributes for the problem that you're solving. This is the need that they have. And maybe you can include sort of your high-level idea of how you're going to address that need. All of that needs to be validated, right? So that's sort of your discovery work. I've gone and created this persona representing who I think my most ideal customer is. It's no longer everyone in the world. Everyone in the world may be downstream 
They will all buy my product, but that's not who my core customer is. I've defined a narrowly focused early adopter. They're going to be the first one in the door to get my product because they have a glaring need. They understand they have the need. Not all customers do, but your early adopter does. They have this is their they understand the job to be done. It's important to them and they're unsatisfied with the way that it's being done now. So that's in the core of your circle. Then I think that the three boxes of the value stream that you focus on first is intrigued. How I'm how what do I need to say that's going to get that customer inside my funnel? Like oh, this company, they seem to be talking to me and they're talking about my need. I need to check them out, right? So intrigued is one of these big boxes right outside the need circle. And then the other two big boxes, I think, are satisfied and passionate. So I'm, I'll go into those three. So the intrigued part, this is essentially your messaging. Uh, it's kind of your value prop, I guess, but I'm tired of that term. The intrigued messaging has two components to it. What is the utility function of my product that's going to address your need? Just in a simple sentence. This is your promise. I'm going to promise you that if you follow this regimen, you're going to see some sleep improvement. This is great. Like I completely made up this product and now I have to run with it throughout the soul. Let's see if I can do it. <laughs> so I promise you, you will see improved sleep if you used my application. If I fail at that, I have no business. The second aspect of this aspirational of this intrigued message though is aspirational. Uh, and so what is that? Well, people who sleep better, feel better, you're going to have a more energized day. You're going to feel happier. You're going to be able to accomplish more. You're going to be able to live out your, you know, live your dreams. You can't promise the aspirational part of it. So much of it is up to the customer themselves. Maybe there's other obstacles that you haven't been able to get to. But you might imagine like how your company evolves over time is that you have forums or message boards or blogs or experts that come on, all of these other things that you can start adding to your ecosystem that it helps those customers who are using your app go on this journey where their aspiration is possible. And so the, the, this aspirational part is sometimes a journey or sometimes it's like you giving them something completely unexpected. So they feel like you're going above and beyond, or it's, uh, you're doing something philanthropic. Oh, you know, a certain part of our revenues, we're going to, you know, help, sick people with chronic you know, sleep disorders or something. I don't know. We're going to fund research into, I don't know. But something that that's more philanthropic might get people into this passionate realm. 
So that's what your aspiration is. But you have to have the utility function, the aspirational component. You have to promise the utility function. You cannot promise the aspirational part. That's a journey that you're trying to get your customer to join. It looks good in your messaging too. So that's the intrigued bucket. The satisfied bucket then is what is the what are the three functions that you're going to provide that is going to address the need? So I don't have the link. Maybe we can find it and share it, but it's, there's a sort of this famous blog post on the power of threes in product design. Slack used this early on. Theirs was like, you know, communications, uh, archive of all messages and an easy search function were the first three things that they that they promised these small agile teams um, and it caught on. They might've updated those at some point, but it starts off as a hypothesis and then you're trying it out and then you're seeing what resonates. And so eventually what this satisfied is, this, these are the three things that I'm imagining my core early adopter user needs to do with the app in order to get the value that I promise from them. So I've, what are the three things that I'm going to give them feature wise, functionality wise, that I, I'm pretty sure they're going to have to use all three of those in order to get the value. So that's defining your satisfied. And then as I mentioned with the already with the passionate side is what, it, what do I need to add to my business model that gets people on the journey, that gets them in this quest to improve their lives, to be more healthy, um, to live the way they want to live, to pursue their dreams, you know, whatever that journey aspect of it is. So then you have activities that you're going to do in support of that. And so uh, these three components are levers that get you to product market fit. And by product market fit, I don't mean product market fit hypothesis. Those three things originally are your hypothesis. These things will get us to product market fit. Product market fit means that you've nailed all three. And so that means passionate. And so that means that you're actually seeing organic growth. You do not have product market fit if you don't have organic buzz or organic growth in your product. Product market fit is a not, I've got 10 customers signed up. Uh, that, that's sort of the new version that somebody redefined product market fit. If you go and reread uh, Mark Anderson's original definition, but also all of the work that uh, Sean Ellis did around product market fit, who really is the sort of the modern person that reintroduced the concept. You know, go back and get the original product market fit, not these uh, lean startup gurus who have redefined it. Um, and so I, I love this idea of, of the gears, right? So I've got who my customer is, I've got my messaging, I've got how I'm delivering my messaging, I've got uh, my product that has this core functionality, and I've got these ideas on how I'm going to achieve growth through passion. 
And those are my levers. So technically there's maybe four levers there. Um, so the value stream discovery is, it sort of has three components to it. I've defined for you what intrigued and what satisfied and what passionate it is. But how we use the tool is, is you're hypothesizing what you need to do in order to get that customer at that particular state. So I'm experimenting with my message, with my utility function plus my aspiration that creates a message. I have to figure out where I'm going to put that. And then I have to define the call to action that indicates that the customer's there. So what does the customer do that indicates they're intrigued? That is a very distinct metric. They come to my website and they download a paper. They come to my website and they request more information. So where are you going to put that message? And what's the call to action that if the customer takes that call to action, it indicates that they are intrigued. And now that gives me a way to go and do that, to modify the messaging, to put it in different places, to change the call to action until I start seeing traction there. And so, yes, you have to do a little bit of awareness, a little bit of acquisition in order to get tranches of users into this experimentation. And then it's the same thing with the intrigued. I've, I've run some experiments to validate that I've got the right functionality. I'm starting to build functionality and I'm maybe even testing what I'm building uh, with, with customers. And I get to the point that I've got an MVP. The MVP is defined by those that three functionality. And I think that I've got it done to the point that customers can come in there and they should be using it as I think they need to use it in order to get the value from it. And so from there, the call to action is to use the, is to use the features. It's not number of downloads, but yes, they'll need to download the app. They need to fire it up. They need to create an account. How can I make that as frictionless as possible? I get them in there. They're using the app. Now I've got to define, I've defined what an active user looks like. So to me, an active user is the same thing as a satisfied user. They're using the product in such a way that they get the value from it. If one piece of my functionality is not being used, then that's a problem. I pull it out, I iterate on it, or it's not needed. What is something else that I can add? Do I need to add something else such that the customer gets value out of it? And this also means that you have to be in touch with the customers. It's not just running surveys. It's, not, it's talking to them. It's understanding more about them. It's understanding what are the obstacles that they're running into using my app or not using my app, getting to the value that I promised them. And now you'll have tranches of users that are your active users. You're creating your dashboard that will monitor the success of your product or where your bottlenecks are. So the call to action is to use the app. Now I'm tracking the specific ways that you're using the app. Not that you're logging in, that you're using this particular functionality. Do not add a feature to your app without the ability to measure 
whether people are using it. And then when we get to passionate, what does a passionate customer do? A passionate customer shares. Passionate customer gives you testimonials, refers other people, uh, does a, a case study, uh, will go on a podcast and talk about how great you are. So how do I get a customer to that? What are the things that I do? Well, there's two things. There's one, there's, you know, sort of this organic, what you really want to do is kind of get to this place where there's organic sharing of that activity. There's organic passion. And then you can add things that sort of induce the behavior that demonstrates the organic nature. You don't want to do the inducement first because then you don't really know if it's real or not. If you give everybody 50 bucks off, then yeah, they're going to go and get 50 bucks off. But if you get them and you're talking to them and you're asking them, you know, are they sharing it? Or if you give them a code to share it, uh, you can start you can start measuring whether they're actually sharing uh, or providing you testimonials. Again, it's remaining in contact with these people, uh, and eventually, you know, a la Dropbox, you give them, you know, free storage, and somebody else will get free storage, and and you start creating this viral or semi-viral effect. Um, everybody can measure virality. Uh, it's just that you probably don't need a coefficient over one. Uh, there's a bunch of articles on viral coefficient. I'm not going to go into that here, but basically it's just tracking that if you give a user a code and they go and they sign somebody up using that code, you can understand how many customers are created by you creating one. How many additional customers? And so most likely it'll be less than one. So it'll take 10, one customer sharing to 10 people gets you maybe one person in your funnel or something like that. Um, but if a, one customer creates one customer, that's your viral. But most products do not need to be viral. But tracking that coefficient is still interesting because you're able to see whether, in fact, you've got this organic growth happening. Um, so I just explained it when I said I wouldn't explain it. But getting into the details of how to implement it, uh, that stuff is available uh, online. And if you need a link, let me know. So, uh, so yeah, so that's intrigued, satisfied, passionate. Those are all things that you're learning about from speaking with customers, interviewing customers, observing customers, you know, practicing human-centered design, usability testing, um, hypotheses, running experiments, invalidating assumptions, validating assumptions. So it's a lot of work, a lot of work to get some sort of a momentum going. And, uh, and then product market fit is achieved by mostly just with tinkering with those three elements plus the customer. You might have the wrong customer. So the other states then become optimizing that process. So once you have, once you have that triumvirate, the the uh, intrigued, the satisfied, in the in the passion, the growth engine, um, you can start then optimizing the other parts, which you've you know maybe had to tinker with just to get people through the funnel. But you've got your acquisition channels. 
Um, so what I call aware. So the acquisition channels, you want to think about like who, going back to that ideal customer, you probably have not maxed out that market segment, that persona. Where does that person hang out? Who influences them? What are sources they're looking to for information? So that's, that's sort of one bucket of, of how you look at your awareness. And the second bucket is, where are they? What are they doing when they, when they run into their need? Like when they become sort of conscious of their need, they become conscious of something not working that frustrates them. And that's when you want to hit them. If you can't, what are they looking at? What website are they on? What are they watching on TV? Are they in their car? They, there's not always going to be a acquisition channel ready there and waiting. Um, but that's, that's sort of growth hacking. Is there a channel or can I create a channel to get them as close to possible as when they're experiencing their need. But so you're pulling in tranches of users and you're tracking them. So where are you putting out this information? This information is gonna be related to who the customer is and the need they have. It's not the full on intrigue. You might have some of the intrigue messaging in there, but you're really just trying to get them to get to where your message, your intrigue message is. So. So again, you follow the same thing. What is the message? Where am I putting it? And what's the call to action that indicates that people are now aware of my product? Where are they going? And I'm measuring that. How many clicks on an ad? That's your awareness number. They land on your website. They read your messaging. They ask for more information. That's your intrigue. The, the, the next step there is, is trusting. So if you imagine somebody that's tooling around your, your website or reading the reviews on uh, the App Store uh, or looking at your features and functionality on the App Store, you're trying to garner there where they feel safe with your product. They feel safe about your data retention policies. They feel safe that this is real. They, you know, so... So you have to think it through. What do people expect for your type of product? What do they think that trusting looks like? Um, endorsements. Um, they watch a video of an influencer. So you're starting to look at, you know, you're optimizing these different steps based upon who your customer is. Convinced stays the same, though, you know, that always becomes optimized too. You're putting up frequently asked questions that determine that, you know, eliminate the need for additional time or information provided. So how do you streamline the sales conversion? And then the other interesting uh, step, the last one uh, here is hopeful. And the trick with hopeful is to eliminate friction. So they're logging onto your app and they see this big old blank screen and they don't know what to do. Uh, so you have to reduce the, the, the friction to getting people to, to the functionality that provides the value. This is where feature bloat often causes problems because it's getting in the way of people 
figuring out how to get the value. It's where successful email drip campaigns work because they're saying, hey, go do this. This is how you're going to get value from it. So again, all of these different states that can be optimized. Um, but ideally, what you've got here is a dashboard um, where you're looking at the conversions um, and you can look at both uh, gross numbers that are at each step, but also what the conversion rates are between the states. You can understand where your bottleneck is, where teams need to focus on improving, whether those teams need to be cross-functional or not, or interdisciplinary or not. Um, and you kind of have to do then this for every persona. They'll be very similar when you go to adjacent markets, but, um, but yeah, you, you, uh, each persona, each market segment has its own value stream. Uh, and then uh, you've discovered your value stream. Now you can map that out into a traditional lean or agile value stream. Uh, but you always have to make sure that you're keeping the continuous improvement part of it and keeping the teams that are responsible for the continuous improvement probably have to be cross-functional. Um, but in the world where software is never done, it means that those bottlenecks are changing all the time. And so you're just on top of this dashboard all the time. So I think that's probably a good place to stop. Uh, I've got a tool that you can download for the value stream discovery uh, loop. I'm always happy to uh, ask questions. And of course, Moves the Needle helps uh, organizations uh, implement all of this as well. So uh, until next time, thanks for dropping by. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Proof Podcast. My mission is to help as many business leaders and startup founders as I can grapple with the increased complexity and uncertainty in the business world. It would mean a lot to me if you could please leave a review of the show and share it with friends and colleagues. Wishing you all the best and remember, be kind first.